Tonight's reading is from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. I would like to encourage you and invite you to join us to start Lent together on Ash Wednesday. Uh, we'll have three services, 7, noon, and 6.30 upstairs in the conference room. Uh, very important time in the life of our congregation. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit that day about, this year I want to talk to you about digital asceticism. Um, I think that might be a better way to fast, uh, or at least a way to consider fasting. So we'll talk to you a little bit about that. But that's an important day, and I hope that you can come. Uh, I visited an, uh, an old friend who owns a jewelry store this week uh, to buy Sandy a small Valentine's present. And my uh, friend commented that uh, he had been getting a lot of jewelry lately from estate sales. And then he told me a strange story. He said, one family brought in a whole box of jewelry that had never been used, and a lot of it was still in the package in which it was bought. And I said, why uh, would someone keep buying jewelry and never use it. And he said, I don't know. It just sounds like an addiction. Uh, maybe she just enjoyed buying it and threw it in the box. Today's parable reminds us that the woman with the unopened jewelry is not the only person with a disordered relationship to possessions. Uh, the parable of the rich fool appears in Luke's gospel right after the Lord's teaching on enduring persecution and the role persecution plays in threatening our faith. And that's significant because it suggests that our relationship with our possessions can be as significant a threat to our faith as persecution can be. And it starts with a man in the crowd who kind of demands that Jesus make his brother share the family inheritance. Uh, that actually wouldn't have been as strange as it sounds to us. In a small Palestinian village, rabbis would, uh, would often settle cases, and inheritance was a very important 
financial decision in the, li- in the life of a family, and so it was common that uh, you'd go to the rabbi for that. Jesus senses a deeper problem and begins to speak to it. And he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's a couple of words for greed in the Greek. This is one of them. It has the idea of grasping for more, uh, of an insatiable desire for something, of an obsessive need for something. Covetousness is a sickness of the soul that deforms our interior life and distorts our passions. And Jesus says, watch out, guard yourself against the virus of covetousness. And then he explains why. One's life, he says, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, there are two Greek words for life. Uh, One of them is uh, bios. And uh, bios is natural life, earthly life. We get our word biology from it. Here's two examples. They are choked by the cares of this life, this earthly life. That's bios. The Gentiles are living in sensuality. In other words, their earthly life is sensual. The second use or the second Greek word is zoe. Uh, Here's two examples. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then Jesus says, I have come that they may have zoe, and may have zoe abundantly. Zoe is divine life. It's life in God. It's life as God has it. It's the life that God shares with us through the Spirit because of the Son's work. And Jesus uses Zoe in this passage. He is saying your spiritual life, the life that you experience in God can be disrupted by your relationship with your possessions. C.S. Lewis has an interesting um, commentary on Zoe and Bios and I just wanted to read you a paragraph from it. In reality... The difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological life, bios, comes to us through nature and is always tending to run down and decay. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole universe, is zoe. Bios has a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. So the feuding brothers were living a bios kind of life. They were consumed with the material, uh, the physical, the natural world. There's much good about that world, but it ultimately decays. And bios life can never provide us with ultimate meaning. And Jesus wants to point them to zoe life, a life rich in God, a life that never ends, a life that is profoundly meaningful. When I think of bios life, Uh, I think of my favorite Dickens novel, uh, Bleak House. 
And Bleak House is a novel about a lawsuit. That sounds pretty boring, um, but it's not boring. The lawsuit is titled Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, and it's a dispute about a will. And young Richard Carstone puts his hopes in settling the lawsuit and living off of his inheritance the rest of his life. His guardian says, Richard, don't put your trust in the family curse. Richard ignores the advice. Young Richard becomes old Richard. As the lawsuit drags on, he fails at several careers, puts off marrying, waiting all the time for a windfall from the court. When the case finally settles in the last pages of the novel, he discovers that his legal fees have exhausted the entire estate. <laughs> Richard dies in true Dickensian fashion through tuberculosis, tuberculosis in a cold room with no money. And I wonder if Dickens was thinking about the parable of the rich fool when he wrote Bleak House. Because a fool, in the Bible's way of thinking, is somebody who puts their hopes in the bios life. Jesus is offering a better life, a life not rooted in the rise and fall of the market or the decision of the court, but in the full and abundant Zoe life. And he says that this life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And in Greek, uh, the literal reading is a little bit clumsy, but it says something like, Zoe life does not, is not able to be found in that which is possessing you. <laughs> There's a very important spiritual principle there. Things we possess can possess us. Things we possess can possess us. And so Jesus tells a story to illustrate how that happens. Uh, a wealthy agribusinessman has a bumper crop. He has so much grain, he doesn't know where to put it. He says, you know, I can tear down my barns, build bigger ones, put it all there. And then he says to his soul, and this to me sounds sort of like the commercials you hear on the Super Bowl for retirement funds. Uh, soul, you have ample goods laid up many years. Relax, take cruises, eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want. And this part never appears in the commercial Fool, God says, <laughs> you're going to die tonight. That would be a real buzzkill for a commercial for a retirement fund, um, but it would be fun to think about. So why does God call the man a fool? Is he a fool because he had a good year in business? Of course not. Uh, the parable we looked at last week celebrates a good businessman. Is he a fool because he prepares for the future? Of course not. A wise person prepares for the future. Proverbs 6, look at the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So what is the farmer doing wrong? Well, first, he is selfish. As he prospers, he gives little thought to the needs of his neighbors. I read an article this week on the economics of a first century Palestinian village. And if you're struggling with insomnia, um, <laughs> I have the cure. Um, what he pointed out, I read lots of boring stuff. What he, what he pointed out was 
in this economy, the peasants all around this man would have been on the edge of starvation. They would have been subsistence level. And so he is just taking it all in and putting it in his own barn and ignoring the needs of probably the people that worked on his land. I mean, people a few feet away. He just doesn't even share with them at all. His vision for the future is self-centered. He's just going to spend it all on himself. He's also living entirely on the bios level of life. He, he doesn't seem to even occur to him that his wealth is on loan to him from God. He has no vision for the Zoe life. And Jesus describes him in verse 21, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And I like the New Living Translation. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Now again, Jesus is not condemning work or financial success or entrepreneurship or buying a home. He is saying that if that is the center of your life, if that is what gets you out of bed in the morning, if that is what you think about all the time, if that is where your emotions rise and fall, then you are a a fool. People living the bios life are so focused on growing their business or their career, paying off their debt, redecorating their home, or the nice cashmere sweater they saw online, that these things possess them. Possessions are not bad in themselves. They become bad when they possess us. A bios life is fueled by a desire to acquire, to get, to have, to hold, to put away, to accumulate, to build, to wear. A zoe life is a life built on the foundation of a rich relationship with God. And there may still be a desire to build a business, grow a career, grow the online presence, invent, re-engineer, explore, redecorate. But these desires grow out of and are boundaried by our relationship with God. You see the difference? It's entirely different. When we live a Zoe life, God possesses us. His gifts do not. So the rich man is having a nice conversation with himself about what he's going to do with his 401k when he feels a pain in his chest and everything goes dark. Jesus is warning us of the limits and risks of the bios life. He's saying that our love of buying and wearing and building and dieting chokes out our love for God. And we're reminded of the parable of the soils that we studied earlier. As far as As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We're reminded of the wealthy young man who was turned away or turned himself away from Jesus after they had a hard conversation about his net worth. Jesus looks on him with sadness and he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
Now we think of Paul's words to Timothy in the sixth chapter of his first epistle. The love of money causes all kinds of trouble. Some people want money so much that they have given up their faith and caused themselves a lot of pain. A disordered relationship with our possessions can deform our soul. So how are we like the foolish farmer? Well, the farmer, as we said, is selfish with his resources. He has no vision for serving others out of his abundance. He has no awareness of being a steward on God's behalf. He cares little for kingdom priorities. He's quite content spending every pay raise on himself. And he's not generous with what God has given him. And the farmer is the exact opposite of the cheerful giver Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 9. I think we have that up there. Notice the difference. God loves a cheerful giver. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So God gives us resources so we can be generous, so we can meet the needs of others, so that we can invest in righteousness, the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. So now we ask some questions that I've already asked myself, and they're not easy. How do you respond when God blesses you financially? Do you become more generous or more of a hoarder? As your income has increased over the years, if it has, have you become freer? Or have you become more afraid that you won't keep what you've got? Does an increase in your income always mean for you an increase in your standard of living? Do you always build a bigger barn for yourself when you have more grain? Do you ever talk to God about your standard of living? Or do you keep him out of that corner of your life? How much is enough for you? How much is enough for you? And what about retirement? In a way, this is a parable about retirement. That was how you retired in the ancient world. And uh, if you get a certain age, like I am, you start thinking about this more. And as you realize that your remaining productive years are diminishing, it is easy to become obsessed with what's in your retirement fund. And you start to realize that, well, if I'm generous here, I'm taking that away from my aging self. And you start living out of scarcity and not abundance. Where is your ultimate trust in your provision for your future? Is it in God? Or is it in your retirement fund? Well, let's look at the farmer's second mistake. He becomes so focused on bios life that he fails to cultivate 
Zoe life. And like most spiritual diseases, the virus that kills the farmer is not easily detected. We might call it the virus of greed. The farmer becomes ill with the virus of greed. The disease blinds him to the abundant Zoe life that Christ offers us. I want to suggest very quickly 10 warning signs that you may be infected with the virus of greed. I'll just go through these quickly. Number one, I work more than is healthy for me and my relationships. Number two, I rarely talk with God or my family about financial lifestyle choices. I do not want input on this area of my life. Three, I am less generous today than when I had less money. Four, I have lots of stuff stored away that I rarely use, but I cannot give it away. Five, I spend more time and energy than I would like to managing, storing, and protecting my stuff. Six, I feel afraid when I even think about simplifying and downsizing my lifestyle, and yet I want to. Seven, I find little joy in giving. Eight, my investment in kingdom priorities and spiritual practices has decreased as my wealth has increased. Nine, I feel trapped. I don't want to live this way, but I cannot figure how to get off the success wealth treadmill. And 10. I always need just a little bit more. I have a number in my head about how much money is enough to make me happy. The number keeps moving higher the more I make. Have you been infected with the virus of greed? You know, if something is stirring in you, just start by talking to God about it, talking to your close friends about it. This might be something you want to talk to God about during Lent. My daughter, Sajin, ran a small business when she lived in Cincinnati. It was called Simplicity by Sajin. Uh, people hired her, uh, kind of like Help You Dwell, to come into their homes and organize, declutter, sort, and purge. And when she and her husband moved to Austin, I I said, honey, are you going to start up that business again? It seemed like it went really well. And she said, oh, no. She said, that work was so spiritually and emotionally exhausting. The people could not let go of their stuff. Sometimes they would fight me over it. And she said, some of these homes were so dark, I could barely go into them. And then she told a couple of horror stories that aren't normative about going into homes that reeked of odors and had feral cats everywhere and stuff piled up and trash and receipts from 1958 and the person in it totally oblivious that anything was disordered in the home. And perhaps that person is suffering from a mental illness and I don't wish to judge them, but I, 
I do want to suggest that that extreme hoarding picture is where the virus of greed takes the human soul if you don't heal it. A disordered relationship with possessions deforms our souls. It's far better to be rich towards God. Let's pray. Lord, maybe tonight it's enough to disrupt us. Maybe just to get our attention. Maybe to show us that we've not connected our discipleship and our spirituality with our lifestyle and our money choices. pray that if there's a conversation to be had here, it might begin tonight. Come and meet us at the table, we pray. In your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to